Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is singer-songwriter Dewey Bunnell from the band America. First of all, bad news for all artists out there who are getting radio airplay. Twelve more members of Congress have signed on to the Local Radio Freedom Act. This act continues the practice of not paying performers when their song is played on the radio. Now, this is a bipartisan effort, unfortunately. Both Democrats and Republicans, 227 signed on and 28 in the Senate, which means it's going to remain a law. Now, keep in mind that there are only four countries in the entire world that do this. The United States, China, North Korea, and Iran. Everywhere else, if a record is played on the radio, not only does the songwriter get a royalty, but so does the performer. In the United States, it's only the songwriters. So, all those radio plays that someone could get on a hit, well, guess what? You're not seeing a dime. This is because of the deep pockets of the National Association of Broadcasters. The NAB has been lobbying for years and years to keep this from happening. And what they usually do is they say, well, guess what? Radio's in a really bad way. And if a law were passed that the performers would make money, all the radio stations would go out of business. We know that's bunk, but members of Congress continue to buy it, mostly because the NAB is lining their pockets. So when it comes time to vote, if you're an artist, you know what to do. Vote for your interests. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now, there's been a couple of very cool acoustic advances that have happened. If you've ever tried or if you own a pair of noise-canceling headphones, which if you travel a lot, I highly recommend, you know how effective they can be. Well, now some scientists from Nanyang Technological University in Singapore and the University of Southampton have come up with a way that you can keep your windows open but still attenuate the noise pollution outside, meaning noise-canceling windows. The idea behind them is that you'll reduce the need for air conditioning and therefore be more energy efficient and greener. This isn't perfect. It doesn't eliminate the outside sounds, it just attenuates them. Attenuates them a lot, apparently, but not enough that you can use in a studio. But it does mean that we're getting there. We're going in the right direction. Each window consists of 18 tiny microphones and 24 speakers. Plus, you have a computer that basically computes how much anti-noise to emit. This is still in the laboratory phase, so don't expect to see it soon. But there is something else that has come out Oh, in the past few years that you might not know about that is commercially viable, something that you can buy. There's a company from Portugal called Vicoustic that uses recycled plastic soda bottles to create acoustic panels and clouds. They call it VicPet Wool. And just like we have recycled blue jeans 
And so many new studios are using that material instead of rock wool or instead of compressed fiberglass. Now we're seeing this as well. So look for Vicoustic recycled sound panels and clouds. The next time you're looking to upgrade your studio acoustics. My guest this week is Dewey Bunnell, who's a founding member and half of the band with a lot of hits that you probably know very well. That's America. Dewey's best-known compositions include Horse With No Name, Ventura Highway, Tin Man, The Border, and many others. During the interview, we talked about the origins of the band, keeping a touring band together for a long period of time, working with members of the Wrecking Crew, working with George Martin, and much more. I spoke with Dewey via Zoom from his home in Wisconsin. I want to go back to the beginning with you. I know a lot about America, but I never remember reading anything about how the band was discovered. Well, discovered, yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we started in London, England. You probably know that based on the fact that we were these American kid teenagers. Our dads were in the Air Force stationed over there, late 60s. Um, so I moved there in 66. I met the guys. Dan and Jerry would have been the 67, 68. And then our senior year of high school, 68, 69. We graduated in 69. So we were this high school band doing top 40 stuff. Graduated from school in 69. Dan went back. I'm just giving you a quick overview. Yeah. Dan went back to one, did one semester of college in, in Virginia Jerry Beckley and myself stayed there, worked at the base, did a few things. I went to a drama school. Jerry started getting his toe in the water a little bit with some recording stuff. The music thing was still a thread, but it was never something that we thought was going to be a professional thing. Well, lo and behold, I'm swatting uh, mosquitoes here. I'm in Wisconsin, you know. Yeah, yeah. And some, some got in the house. Anyway, um, so... You know, unbeknownst to each other, really, we were writing these songs. Dan was writing some in Virginia. Jerry was doing his thing. I had some songs. When Dan came back, we got together and just lit this fire under ourselves. And we got had these songs. We arranged them and we said, let's, I don't know, maybe we can get something going. Jerry met a couple of basically tape ops and a, and a producer, I think. I don't know the exact connection there. Uh, but everything funneled into this one guy that we ended up dealing with named Jeff Dexter. And he was a, uh, a MC kind of a, a compare, whatever you want to call it. It's kind of a scene maker that in the old, in those days, that would have been the phrase used. He was at all the big shows around London and he introduced Hendrix at the Isle of Wight festival. And he was a key figure. He liked our stuff. And he introduced us to the right people to get us on a few small shows. Uh, his roommate at the time was a guy who, uh, Ian Samwell, an older guy relative to us, and who ha was a songwriter and a producer and who had worked with um, Cliff Richard and the Shadows. He wrote a song called Move It that was a big hit in those days uh, way back when so he but he at that current time 
was an A&R man at Warner Brothers in London. But I've kind of jumped forward a little bit because while we were under the umbrella of Jeff Dexter, and there was another guy before him uh, who, who liked the songs that we had, essentially what turned into the first album. Um, he got us, I'm trying to get this right, Bobby, chronologically. I should know this by heart because we just did the biography with Jude. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the guy. He worked with Middle Earth Records. It was a small little label. Um, but anyway, and then there was the other guy, the, the DJ who was a went on to produce. He's very uh, respected guy still. Uh, he produced uh, a show called The Old Grey Whistle Test in oh, London, yeah. it was in England. It was kind of a hip TV show. Yeah. Anyway, all those things converged, and we ended up uh, being looked at by a few different labels, Atlantic, um, Dick James Music. They, we had no money, by the way, zero money. We had a couple of beat-up acoustic guitars, some Yamahas, and they paid for us to do some demos. And uh, we, we were kind of pitting three different labels against each other, if you will. It wasn't exactly ethical. But it wasn't a lot of money, relatively speaking. And it was, you know, some four-track and eight, uh, I guess it was four-track and eight-track demos of the songs. But now we had some things in our hands to walk around to, to uh, talk to people and play for people. Ultimately, we ended up actually sitting down in the office of Ian Ralphini, the president of the Warners branch there in London. It's actually called Kinney Records because the Kinney... Uh, the Kinney parking lot group had purchased us back then. This is all historic old news. But that was our discovery because Ian Samwell, I mean, Ian Ralphini signed us immediately because Ian Samwell was the A&R guy there. And Ian Samwell then took us under his wing to get us in the studio. Now we, were, we had some funding. Now we were being backed by Warners and they put us in the studio and we did we recorded the first album at Trident Studios. And, I mean, things just snowballed. We had um, Ken Scott engineered while Ian uh, Samwell sat at the desk. It's, it's credited as a co-production of the band because the three of us had every note worked down to the, to the, you know, the nuance. And had the songs were all completed, we played them over and over. So it was basically just go in there and lay these things down. And we didn't use really a rhythm section at all. If you listen to that first album, we had our old high school drummer play on a on a song. We did get rake. See, now we had connections with these people, and they had they knew the right people. So they got a Ray Cooper, who I didn't know at the time. And Ray came in and did uh, some percussion on a few of those tunes, and. Just by happenstance, uh, David Lindley, who went, who, David Lindley, who plays with Jackson or used to for years, and and uh, we worked with David Lindley and Jackson a lot uh, in those early years. He played on it, but but that's virtually all. It was just the three of us overdubbed some a few electric guitars, mostly a lot of acoustic guitars, sixes and twelves, and then all those vocals. So that was the discovery. What's interesting is I had co-written a book with Ken Scott, his autobiography. Oh, wow. 
and he had talked about working on that first album with you. And I went back last night and I reread, you know, what he had talked about, which actually wasn't much. It was it was about a quarter of of a chapter. He pretty much said just what you said, where it was pretty easy. You guys knew everything really well. The only thing he said was, I think they brought a drummer in that they knew, and he wasn't that good, and that's why he was low in the mix, something like that. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, we're talking high school. I mean, we were as green as you get. We didn't have any chops to speak of past the high school top 40 band. And David Atwood was the drummer guy. He was never really part of that. We'd already lost touch with him. This all happened in a condensed period of time. We graduated from high school in June of 69. And really, by one year later, even less than that, yeah, by 70, late 70, I guess in November of 70 or something, we were playing shows, little shows at pubs and uh, the Imperial College in London based on these connections we'd made. And David Atwood wasn't part of that. He was still in London. A lot of American kids ended up staying there. Their dads were still in the service. They were out of high school. A lot of them, of course, did go back to the U.S. to go to college. But um, Atwood was still knocking around the base there, working in the warehouses and stuff. And when we needed a drummer, we just thought, hey, let's get David. He's right over there. We didn't know anybody else. You know? And subsequently, after the big record, after it hit big and and the next within uh, six months, really, or whatever it was, it was such a short period of time. We were on planes back to the U.S. We'd done a club tour based on the success in, in England of the of Horse With No Name and the first album. It was doing very well in England. And so the Warner's parent company out in L.A. said, uh, well, yeah, you guys got to come over. We're gonna, we'll put this thing out, of course, but you got to come and support it. So we did a club tour, five weeks or something. We ended at the Whiskey A Go-Go. Uh, and everything had blown up over there. It was huge. We go back to England, virtually pack our ba- repack our bags, and come back to live in L.A. David Geffen and Elliot Roberts had approached us. We're gonna, they're gonna manage you guys, and Warner Brothers is your label, so you got to be here. And um, we were frankly, we were in a rut in England. You know, we'd been there most of our very young adult lives. We weren't even adults, frankly, um, six, 17, 18, and 19 there in the beginning, you know. So when we got plunked down in L.A. and we're with Geffen and Roberts and David Geffen just wants to get us on the road immediately and start, you know, making some dough on the success, which in retrospect, I see that now. I mean, at the time we were, it was such, you know, we didn't have a big, broad perspective. So we just said, well, we'll get David Atwood. Fly David over. He can be our drummer. We didn't have a bass player. Dan, Dan and Jerry had been alternating on bass on the recordings and even on stage. We sat on stools. We each had an acoustic guitar in the stand next to us. There was a 12-string between Jerry and Dan, and there was a one Ampeg, one of those clear Ampeg Perspex, whatever oh, bass. Oh, yeah, yeah, right, right. The Dan Armstrong yeah. ones, yeah. Dan Armstrong, yeah. yeah. And a bass amp. And they would pass that back and forth on certain songs. I only just played my six-string acoustic. So now we've got Dave Atwood, and they've got us in SIR rehearsing. And I'm trying to remember, our bass player turned out to be David Dickey. I really don't know where we got him. Oh, wait. Yes, I do. 
we lived up at Geffen's house for uh, several weeks before he finally kind of said, hey, guys, uh, you might want to consider getting apartments. Yeah. We were that green. And we didn't, you know, oh, well, that's my room. I actually had my wife. I had just gotten married before we left. That was a, that's all another story. That was a little premature relative to life as it progressed. Although we had a long marriage and kids. So I had my wife. Jerry and Dan were bachelors. And uh, they each had a room and I had a room at David Geffen's house. And we were by the pool and we were in L.A. And yeah, this is great. Ultimately, we then got out of there and went to the Sunset Marquee. I think lived in that for a month or something before we got these apartments. Well, in the apartment building, there were several other artists, young people our age, actors. Some of the Three Dog Night guys were living in there. And there was this actor named David Jolliffe. He was in a TV show called Room 222. Oh, I remember. And he was a, a musician. Everybody was kind of, everybody played guitar, you know. Yeah. Hey, we jam in the apartments. And he, as I recall, in fact, I know now it's coming back to me. He had a duo with this guy named David Dickey. It was David Jolliffe and David Dickey. And David was a professional, if you will. He'd been in some show bands in Vegas. He was four or five years older than us. He had some chops. He was trying to make it in L.A. So he was a shoe-in. We just said, we played some songs. He played the bass. Great, you're the bass player. And David will fly him out and he'll be the drummer. Well, that first tour we did, pretty big tour, sold out the whole thing. It became evident during the course of that tour. We had J.D. Souther opening for us, but it became evident during that tour. And David Dickey would take us aside every other night and say, you know, he's not keeping time, man. This is really bad. So we ultimately let David go right after that first tour, did some auditions, hired the very first guy, Willie Leacox, and Willie stayed on with us as drummer and for 41 years, 43 years. Wow. He just retired four or five years ago. And David Dickey, his, his not quite as long. He stayed with us until I think about 1980, at least 10 years, if I put that together. But he wanted to go do his own thing. So the bass player slot had always had a, it was morphing a bit. We've had our, our bass player now, Rich Campbell, for 16 years, though. And, we, you know, we've always been pretty, we've always made our unit a, a family group. And we always work through any problems. And we always, we weren't really bouncing around a lot. In recent years, the last decade, we have had uh, our lead guitar player slot has shifted two or three times. And, uh, but Rich has been with us 16 years. And we had two other bass players, three really, between David Dickey and Rich Campbell. You must treat your band very well because people don't stay with any kind of a gig for that long unless they feel good about it, you know? Well, you know, yeah, our, we came from that mentality, this high school mentality where, you know, the three musketeers, one for all, all for one. Granted, we didn't really, nobody became a permanent member. We were originally the trio. Once you get managers and agents, right, and attorneys, uh, I could have easily said, hey, let's just divide the pie a zillion ways and we'll all do this together and live happily ever after. Well, certain guidelines were set in place, you know. But we always tried to pay the guys' the salaries uh, well. And we always could provide a lot of work because 
because we've we've always done upwards of a hundred shows a year, mm. which is it's a good chunk of time, and we're guaranteed that. I mean, it's not like we go out every three years and do one two month tour or something. You know, it's consistent work. So the guys that have worked uh, with us, and we do, we get friendly. You know, we have we're more than just uh, you know workmates. We hang out to some degree. Although the older we've gotten, the more isolated everybody's become a bit but yeah yeah we like to think we've treated our guys good and we we talk regularly and share personal moments and things like that you know i want to talk about the second album that you did because you brought in some of the wrecking crew i saw hal blaine and joe osborne come in joe osborne yes, yeah right so what was that like? Because you went from basically no r- rhythm section or people that you know, and all of a sudden you have heavy hitters there that are, that are working with you. So how did you feel about that? Well, this was new territory for me. You know, I, I had always been just a self-taught uh, guitar player, played surf music instrumentals and whatnot, and didn't. Uh, certainly we devoured LPs. We listened to, on the headphones, listened to everything and liked to think that we were well-versed in the music of the day, but I wasn't that familiar with the Wrecking Crew and those players. And my education about them was an eye-opener, needless to say. But they were just, um, we were going into the record plant for the second album. Now we were under the umbrella of Geffen Roberts, and so they were, Elliot Roberts really was our day-to-day guy. And Elliot would say, okay, we blocked this time, you know, all the administrative part of things, booking a room for a month and and you guys are going to need a rhythm section. And, the, and I don't remember any discussion about it. It was, and we're booking Hal Blaine and Joe Osborne. Uh, and I'm wondering why David did, well, that was, yeah, David Dickey was not in the band that, at that point when we were making the second album. It's, 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 it's a little fuzzy in that area because normally we would have made, let him be the bass player. Mm. Because he did play bass on subsequent albums. Anyway, Joe played bass on all of them. And again, we were very well rehearsed. We woodshedded with these songs. We knew them pretty well backwards and forwards. And who was it? Uh, Mike Stone over at the record plant engineered. And we produced it. It was the three of us and Mike Stone. That's how deep end we were. Uh, I mean, because we had... We'd essentially produced the first album or felt like we had, and we were credited with that. And we, we'd already cut ties with Ian Samwell, which was kind of ugly because he was still a staff producer, A&R man at Warner's London. And when Geffen kind of came in and did this swoop, uh, and of course we were just, yeah, we can't wait. We're going to go back to the States and be managed by Geffen and Roberts and be in the same office with, you know, CSN and everybody. There was no stopping us, but we didn't, the ethics part, you know, was, yeah. was not thought through. So I remember Ian Samwell flying out to negotiate around Geffen's pool with David and us, and it was real awkward and uncomfortable, and um, there was a settlement reached. I'm not even privy to what it was. I'm sure I... I know, and I've forgotten, but it wasn't a ton of money, but yeah. it was all relative to us renegotiating our Warner's deal there in LA. And 
So Ian Samuel was given a package and he went back to England and uh, we didn't talk to him for a long time. We did ultimately reconnect. But so Ian Samuel was out of the picture as a producer. And, you know, Jerry's very good in that department. I've always said Jerry would be deemed our musical director. I mean, he's very schooled, pianist, arranging vocals, parts. We all kicked in on production ideas as, as, as anybody would do. Hey, this might sound good there, or I've got a part here, or here's a counter melody or something to sing. But Jerry structurally was good at that. And he was good behind the board because he had had experience in that studio in London for a little bit that one, that first summer. Because I wasn't even hip to, you know, the console or, or multi-track recording or anything. You know, sound on sound uh, tape recorder was about as far as I'd gotten. And and frankly, I was never a tech guy. And I was I marveled at uh, the process and how we'd layer those vocals. And um, it was beautiful, you know, yeah. and all the sounds we could do. But back then to, to Joe, well, anyway... It, it was it was great working with them because they were seasoned veterans and we learned a lot from them because they'd throw in their two cents when we come in and listen to a take and talk about what that sounded like or, you know, where to place uh, the pans and the mics. And uh, uh, it was all kind of on-the-job training. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're producing yourself and then George Martin comes in. Yeah. I can understand going, okay, it's George Martin, so yeah, I'd, I'll give up control for that. But is that what happened? <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. I mean, we did the, then the third album ourselves, too. We, we Third album was basically the same structure as the second. Back in the record plant, back with a batch of songs we wrote that year. Back, You know, we're filling our contract. We have to make an album a year, Warners and all. And, uh, and we did virtually the same situation on that album. We did have some strings on that. Jim Ed Norman came in and did some strings for us. Uh, so we were already we were already keyed into some production expansion and doing some using some different instruments and some different things on that third album. But by the end, it, it didn't do quite as well. The second album did equally, if not better, than the first album. Another couple of big hits: Venture Highway and uh, Don't Cross the River. Uh, the third album, not so much. We, we'd recorded Muskrat Candlelight, retitled it Muskrat Love. Quite a uh, polarizing little number, yeah, as yeah. we say. We just liked it. I don't know. We were stoned or something listening <laughs> to albums. Go, we, could do, we could do that. Some obscure shelter artist named Jim Ed, I mean, named uh, Willis Allen Ramsey. Geffen didn't like the song anyway, and a lot of people didn't. And we said, well, we're doing it anyway, and we did. So at the end of that album, lack of success, not a big hit, we shook it up and said, uh, and Elliot was saying, you know, you got to do something different. Let's get a producer. And really we had lost, it, it was too big a, a job, booking rooms and, you know, someone had to sign invoices from studio instrument rentals and pay, you know, engineers and I'm not doing that. And Elliot was pulling his weight on that, but a producer can funnel all that, you know, yeah. a real live guy. So we said, uh, I don't even recall how George's name came up because his name was on the tip of everybody's tongue, but George Martin, that would be great. Wouldn't that be great? And as as fate would have it, he was in town. 
At the time, we were discussing finding a producer for the Oscars for uh, Live and Let Die. Him and McCartney were in town. And Geffen, who had a lot of clout, was able to call him up and say, hey, would you take a meeting over at my lookout management there on Sunset with one of my artists? And that was it. We had a meeting with George Martin in Elliot's office. George was great. Kind of came in, sat down, long, lanky, tall, distinguished British, like royalty, you know, but still approachable, still a hands-on cool guy and took off his shoes and, right, lads, well, what do you want to talk about, you know? I don't do his accent very well, but, and we just said, well, we're looking for a producer, you know, and he knew our catalog. He knew we'd been very successful. Again, timing was so good because he was in a place in his career where I think he'd done C-Train and Gary Brooker, I think, you know, from Procol Harum. Yeah. I think he did a record with him. But he hadn't, he didn't have a big band or artist. The Beatles thing was still in, in flux. He was obviously no Beatles, but he was doing some of the remixing and things on those projects. But so we would be a brand new artist. We were young. We were full of, you know, life and our little Three Musketeers gang. We kind of ganged up on him and, yeah, this would be great, George. I think we could do this. We love all your work. And and he said, right, then let's give it a go, lads, you know. But number one, he said, I can't set aside two and a half, three months because we had really languished over the third album. It's another reason we spent a lot of money producing ourselves and fucking around and, you know, staying up late in the studio and, you know, going over mixes too many times and re cutting stuff, whatever. Yeah. And, and George knew about that. He'd done a little research on us. So, or maybe Geffen and Roberts had told him some things about us before he came to meet us. And so um, he made that pretty clear. He must come to England. And we said, fine, you know. And we had the connection with England. We were, you know, we had this whole British sensibility. We, we, we knew the British sense of humor and the food and the culture. And Jerry and I both had British mothers. I was born in England. Mm-hmm. I was born so that was it. Uh, we hit it off socially and we spoke the language and we could talk about egg and chips and bangers and mash and yeah, yeah. Monty Python and whatever you want to talk about. So, so that was it. And of course we did the same exact thing, the formula, sit down and go through our songs, decide which songs that each guy had been writing what that we thought was a good combination and we flew over there with these things totally rehearsed. And we cut that album in about 17 days or something. Wow. Tracked, overdubbed, mixed. And as Jerry says in uh, all the interviews, and it's true, um, George said something. Uh, well, something this simple and this easy certainly can't be a hit. You know, he kind of he kind of des- described it as this has gone well too, way too easy. But, you know, his his uh, overseeing was fantastic and wonderful man. And we had, we bonded right from then on. And the album did really well. Certainly outdid Hat Trick. And Tin Man was a hit. And Lonely People was a big hit. You know, and these songs are still still hits. They still uh, are, are played. And so we were kind of off to the races with George. 
and the relationship was very casual. There was not, nothing heavy. heavy. We, we worked until it kind of ran its course. We stayed friends right up until he died and uh, would see him whenever he was in L.A. And he'd come see us perform in, in England when we were around. And, of course, he got older and was a lot more frail. His hearing was bad, you know, yeah. and his hearing only got worse and worse. So that was a sad reality, but those were wonderful years with him. How many albums did you do with him? It was quite a number, right? Well, we did five studio albums. Then he remixed the songs from the first three albums that he didn't do. Basically, Horse with No Name and Better Highway and I Need You for the greatest hits. And then one live album we did. We recorded a live album in um, Santa Barbara. I think it was Santa Barbara. So five studio albums, one live album, remix the greatest hits. Seven. Even so, the Beatles connection, that has to excite anybody that's in the music business. It is royalty, you know, musical royalty that you're working with. Yeah, I know. In retrospect, at the time, you know, yeah, that was all true. And uh, we tried not to hassle him about Beatles stuff too much. We were always... Uh, He'd already heard so much, and everybody asked him, you know, everything. Beatles this, John Lennon that, Paul McCartney that. I mean, we got a few few discussions in about the Beatles, and he, if if something in the studio triggered a memory of something he'd done with the Beatles, he'd bring it up. Oh, yeah, when we did this, we did that. We used a couple of percussion instruments and stuff from Yellow Submarine or mm. the bell from Penny Lane or something on uh, some of the recordings over there in England. So that was fun. But yeah, I mean, uh, we did ultimately meet, uh, I met all four Beatles uh, separately different times mm -hmm. um, over the years. And, but we didn't hang out a lot with them. George Harrison became a friend for a short little period of time. And Ringo's a friend of mine now. Mm -hmm. But it's the old Ringo, right? It's the, it's the this generation Ringo. And I remember going over there one year to visit relatives because my mother and her family were there and my first wife's family were all from there and always get in touch with George and when we were there to see if we could have lunch or do something. And he said, oh, come on down, Paul's in. Ooh, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. So we went to the studio and met Paul there in the control room and listened to a playback. of. I don't even remember what the song was. He was working on something of Paul's, one of his solo albums. But yeah. We even didn't care about the music as much as meeting the guy at that point, you know. I wanted to ask you about the album that you did with Russ Ballard, because that seems so disconnected from everything else, being that he did most of it and you just put the vocals on, right? Exactly. We did two albums with Russ. So now you jump forward to whatever year it is, 80 or 81, 80. So George ended, the last album with George was called Silent Letter, and that was in 79 or 80. And that's when we decided, you know, the career path is going one way. George had started doing a lot more work other than us. I mean, we weren't exclusive by any stretch. And he'd had a great success with the Jeff Beck album, uh, Blow by Blow, a bit earlier. And really, those last couple of albums were not doing well. We were so spoiled by the first success of the first couple of albums really right through to the greatest hits in 76 or whenever that was, 77, that we had to shake things up, you know, and Dan had left the band in 77. There was one thing. George 
produced the duo America, Jerry and I. In fact, that might have been the last album. I, I have to look again, but we just, we, the only thing we couldn't change was ourselves. You know, we had changed management by then. We already moved on from Geffen and Roberts to one of the Geffen and Roberts, we used to call the manager of the month, John Hartman. We had had Bill Siddons manage us for a little bit under the umbrella of Lookout Management. Siddons was the Doors manager, and he's still a super good friend of ours. We'd had Ron Stone out of that office. Irving Azoff had come in and was now guiding the Eagles, and he brought Joe Walsh with him, uh, Danny Fogelberg. There was a lot of artists in that office at that point. We, Joni Mitchell, of course, Neil Young, Jackson Brown. Jackson opened our second tour when we were still with Warner uh, with uh, Devin Roberts. There's a whole lot of great history in there. But all of that was grinding down. We'd moved on. And even the Hartman and Goodman relationship, that they were managing us after Elliot and David. We just kind of basically shuffled over to this office. And those John Hartman and Harlan Goodman had had a falling out with David and Elliot, started their own company. They took Crosby and Nash, they took Poco, they took us. We went willingly because we felt like we were being kind of, we were on the back burner, you know, the careers of Neil and Joni were the primary and Crosby, Stills and Nash. And they were a generation a bit, bit older than us. And they had, they were huge artists to manage. And so we needed another manager and we ended up interviewing a bunch of people and settled on this man who's with us still to this day, Jim Mori. He was a uh, partner in another company called Cats Gallon and Mori. Sandy Gallon was kind of the big music guy of the three partners. Jim was a lesser partner, I think it's fair to say at that point. And Ray Katz was a huge movie producer. So it was a big, huge company. And they, they basically dealt with a lot of middle of the road, if you will. That's, that's always a derogatory term. We were probably middle of the road. I don't know. But like Neil Diamond and Dolly Parton and Cher and uh, huge artists. Mm -hmm. So a little different mentality about how to manage. A little more out front thing. Gavin and Roberts were very protective. You're not going to do any interviews. You're not going to, you know, they would nurture their artists in this uh, protective way, creating whatever they, you know, mystique or just buffering them from all this. Whereas uh, Jim Mori's office was a little more uh, traditional showbiz, you know, go do, I don't know, People Magazine and things like that. But we ended up, Jim took over, and the first thing he said was, okay, we got to get, you got to get some outside material. Let's start listening to tapes. Um, I think you guys got to stop these three giant tours a year in, domestically and start to work outside the country more. We were always uh, popular in foreign countries. So we play Australia quite a bit. We still have a big following in Australia. But he got us into Italy and uh, the Philippines and uh, South Africa and all these places to create a vac in his in his words to create a vacuum domestically and you know work your chops out there a little more obviously make some money although you never make as much outside the U.S. but that's another story so when we were going through all these tapes we found this song you can do magic 
In fact, I think Jim, as I recall, Jim knew Russ Ballard's manager and knew of Russ Ballard. And Russ Ballard had had hit with Santana, Santana song he wrote. And an Argent. Winning an Argent. Yeah. yeah. He was in Argent, I think. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. actually, he wasn't in the zombies, though, I guess. Argent was in the zombies. So that's how that happened. And, that t- and, and he wrote You Can Do Magic, apparently, specifically with us in mind. Wow. So that was our first single under the umbrella of Jim Mori and using this new producer and using an outside song. We had some of our songs on that album, which was called um, View from the Ground. It's a good album. I like that album. But by the time we got to the next album called Your Move, Russ Ballard was really all of it, like you said. We hit this wall, lifestyles, life in general, you know? We'd had all this success. We'd, um, I had kids by then. I'd moved to Marin County from L.A. Dan was gone, and, and that, that had left a kind of a, a w- open wound somewhat that we were still re- reeling from a little bit. I think that's what affected the writing. Jerry had been married and divorced, I think, by that point. A uh, quick marriage thing. So there were personal stuff. You know, there was a lot of personal stuff that it wasn't overt, but it was always bubbling under that that changed the course, I think, of the creativity. So we did, you know, look for outside material. And when we hit on Russ, he, he said, well, I've got a bunch of songs. So, well, we'll do then. Let's do a bunch of your songs. And we did some of our own on that album. It was only two albums. We did so this before. wasn't imposed on you. This was to help you along. Yeah. I mean, it was it was a problem-solving, you know, powwow. What to do? The new manager wants to, wants to, you know, Im- impose himself on, on our, guiding our career, and it was kind of a bitter pill. I remember going, "Ah, we we can write." You know, you believe in all your own songs, even if they're crap. You yeah, know? yeah. And I thought, oh, this song was a hit. What's wrong with this song? What's wrong with that? So it was very difficult to be objective. George Martin was good at that too, because he, you know, I'd try and sometimes I. We'd have to go through each other's songs. Then it was three guys until it was two. And there'd be a lot of songs on the table. And who's going to pick what? And George was very good at going, well, well, Dewey, this song of yours is a bit like, too much like that one of yours. So that song should be out. And Jerry, likewise. And he would see the bigger picture, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's what you need. You need to learn. In those days, of course, an album was this living, breathing entity. It was one thing. And the songs needed to flow well the running order was important uh, how many minutes you put on the side of what song went segues whatever none of that really matters that much nowadays but so he was objective about that and and um jim maury knew that too so they could critique these songs you know the idea was not to bruise our egos but as i look back yeah that song wasn't that great and i remember george martin when we go to the next project i'd still i'd still be, believe one of these songs from the last project was hey, this is still a good song maybe i'd change a lyric or change a bridge or something and and, J- and um, george in all his wisdom and bless his heart would say well Joey, you know if it wasn't if it wasn't good enough for the last project why should it be good enough for this one <laughs> you know? it's hard to answer that yeah, yeah. meaning i don't yeah. like the song you know yeah it was great he was very uh 
personable that way. And you never know, you're, you're your worst, not critic, but you're the last one to see the obvious when you have a song that you believe in and it's not getting any uh, interest, it's not getting any takers, then that's, there's, there must be some reality there. You yeah, know? yeah. Did you reconstitute any of these songs when you did your solo albums? I've never done a solo album. I thought you did. I've never done a solo album. Oh, okay. Jerry has. Oh, Jerry's okay. done several. Jerry's done uh, three or four uh, solo albums, and some did come out, yeah. Um, I don't think any that were passed on of my songs came back. Uh, I mean, we've done a couple this past, you know, we're in our 50th anniversary, and yeah. we've done a lot of raking over old hard drives and old cassettes and dats and uh, reel-to-reels and salvaged a bunch of songs that we're putting out now from back then that and some of which were those songs that i'm talking about that i thought had potential but you know they're being seen under a different light now they're and they're great they're, they're endearing because i remember the moment you know in 82 when we record we we basically shelved a lot of songs uh in those days after that never to see the light of day but when but now as a retrospective thing we dug them up and there's some cool things in there there's some nice stuff that could have could have been should have been developed more maybe what was your favorite album you've done a lot of them what 20 or so something like that we've done a lot we did several i say several handful of albums for just independent like we did an album called hourglass and i really liked hourglass we did it for a, a label called american gramophone oh i remember them it was a guy named the, the kind of mastermind of that label was he was all based in omaha nebraska and he had this big spread a big ranch place with farm whatever you call it actually it was butted up against warren buffett's property and he was this entrepreneur guy he made all his money initially on this this song called um it was the cb radio song uh breaker breaker convoy uh, convoy yes that was him yeah yeah and he made a fortune uh, apparently and now he's uh, the, the leader and the head of this this organization or this entity called Mannheim Steamroller yeah 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 they do all and he was packaging Mannheim Steamroller CDs in gift boxes with a coffee mug and you know and a, a doily i don't know he had a warehouse full of all this stuff he was producing all this stuff it was an in-house he was a one man he had a mailing list of you know hundreds of thousands of people or something and so it was like and we weren't selling records uh, this is i forget what year this is but he said you know we can access my mailing list and we're going to sell a bunch of these records so we did that uh it wasn't motivated necessarily on sales we've never really been motivated that way but you start to equate success and the quality of the music with sales yeah, yeah. But it, it was a fun project. I like that one. To answer your question, a favorite, certainly a latter-day favorite was that album called Hourglass. Um, and then we did another one at Jerry's studio called Human Nature sometime after that. And there's a few years between each of these projects. So those two, I really like those albums from, from the second half of our career, if you will. But Hat Trick, I did like that album, the third album that didn't do so well. I love the first three albums. I really do. All three of them. 
because we were so, it, they're so crystal clear in my mind, that youthful energy. And we really thought we were, you know, digging deep and writing songs that would have lasting appeal. And some of them are like standards. Jerry's song, I Need You, which he wrote for the first album when he was a teenager. Some of these songs. And, and after decades of hearing them on the radio, they, they become part of your, you know, part of whatever you are. I've seen you on TV a couple of times recently, Dan Rather, and there was a concert, I think it's from Soundstage, that they've been playing lately, which was fantastic. I really enjoyed it. But Dan Rather, who has a great show, who would have thought, I was never a big fan when he was a newsman, but as an interviewer of musicians, he's really good. What was that like? Well, you're right. I mean, he's kind of an icon from our past. All of us have seen him on TV from back then. Geez, he was... He was at the Kennedy assassination, for God's sake. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. I mean, it, over the years, we found ourselves in front of some pretty interesting people and done some what wouldn't have been as, uh, considered something we'd end up doing. But very nice man. Uh, he's, he was prepared. Again, he's a, a seasoned elderly gentleman. You know, I mean, uh, we didn't meet him beforehand. He accommodated us by coming and bringing his whole crew to uh, there's this big casino in Connecticut called the Mohegan Sun. I think it's the biggest casino in the world in, in the U.S. Close to it, anyway. Big shows. They have a huge arena, but they also have a smaller venue that we play more more regularly. So a big suite was set up, uh, multi room suite, and they set up the cameras and the lights and everything in one room. And we were to just walk into that room, and out from the suite would come. Dan Rather, and so we were literally meeting him for the first time right then, you know. We chatted a lot more after the interview, and he was a sweet guy, and he had an interesting take on things, and uh, we really enjoyed him. And you're right, though, I never thought, what a weird thing, he's, have you seen the list of the people he's interviewed, though? All these artists, of ev all ilks, all, you know, Foreigner, and, yeah. uh, Crosby's Nash, and you know, the one that really sticks out to me is Gene Simmons. He actually got Gene Simmons to cry. That's right. I saw that one, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the tough nut. Yeah, talking about his mom and the Jew the Holocaust. Yeah, stuff, right. I think it was. Right. I really enjoyed when you were on there, uh, as well as the concert that I saw. It was, it was excellent. And it was an old one, too. The concert that they're playing now, it's from early 2000s or something, isn't it? The one on soundstage? It's it's a it's this Chicago WGN or PBS or whatever the hell it is yeah. called Soundstage. That one gets a lot of airplay. The one, the one that is really cool was an actual independent movie maker named uh, something Clifton, who filmed us in Central Park in 1979, I think. And it's a documentary. It's our, it's our concert, but he does a lot of shots around New York City. It really freezes the time, you know, kids on roller skates back in those days and uh, young people running into, there was a concert venue called uh, the Schaefer Music Festival, Schaefer Beer. I remember that. The Woolman uh, Rink. Well, we played that a few times and that was the, the concert that he filmed. And it was a multi, it was on actual film, 60, uh, not whatever the, the millimeter film it is. Must have been more than 16 millimeter, but it might have been 16 millimeter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's got great cuts. It's well edited. There's that one. 
there's this a show we did in uh, Bremen, Germany, way back in the beginning that gets a lot of airplay because it's it's in that period I'm talking about. I think we just recorded the album with George. Either we'd done that show in Germany before we went to London and did George because we tagged on a tour onto the recording time or we'd done it after it. So it was right in 74. But there's a lot of great old footage of stuff that we did over the years that were, you know, in retrospect, we were lucky to get on in concert. Don Kirshner's um, Midnight Special or whatever it was, there's a lot of that stuff. You know, Dick Clark, uh, all of the, all of the, um, those daytime shows and stuff. Uh, Last question. What's the best piece of business advice that you either learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Without a doubt, keep your publishing. <laughs> I mean, it goes, it's like, it's unbelievable how obvious that is. And you only know it when your career has gotten to a place where if only I had my publishing, when those songs have been playing now for decades, you know. And for your listeners who don't know, publishing is, is separate from the record deal, although certainly in our days, the our record deal with Warner Brothers was contingent on us giving Warner Chapel Music the publishing. And the word publishing is, it's a, it's a really difficult uh, subject because it's hard to to define it. But in a nutshell, a publisher administers essentially the music. The writer always gets. It, it, I was described. It was described to me as a two penny thing. The publisher gets one penny. You get one penny. It sounds silly, but that, in in essence, if you have your own publishing company, if it had been Dewey Bunnell Music, then I would have gotten that penny and the penny for writing the Dewey Bunnell songs. So essentially, half of my earnings the last 50 years uh, are gone or, or went to but that's a that's a fairly you know uh infantile way to ex explain it i mean a, a company a good publisher will place your songs a good publisher will make sure that um licensing deals are up to snuff i mean there's a lot of things publishers do for you um but in retrospect had i had we, you know, America's publishing went to Warner Chapel in those days. And subsequently, when we moved away from, from Warner Brothers, went to other labels, we do have our own publishing companies now. But the big hits, of course, were uh, the 70s music is pretty much owned by uh, Warner Chapel, that side of it. So that would be my one, one advice. I mean, it's good, to, it's good to get the right people around you right from the beginning. We were very fortunate, and I will credit David Geffen and... Elliot Roberts for getting us in connect connection with a business management management firm who we're still with, um, and an attorney who we don't use as much anymore. But uh, he was a powerful guy in LA too. So with Geffen, you got that kind of package, or at least he guided us that way, and we knew no different. Because a young artist, in our case, it's it's all about wow, we get to make a record, whatever I have to sign, yeah, yeah. and I get a out there you know and this is going to be fantastic and it was fantastic and and who knows had we gone in any other direction maybe things wouldn't have there's a lot of intangibles in there as to why something happens why it was a, a song becomes as big as it does i mean it, 
Um, we did have some very powerful people around us right from the get-go. When you consider we were three Air Force kids in England uh, who just had written some songs, you know. So we were very fortunate. But before you sign on the dotted line, talk about the publishing guys and gals. You can find out more about Dewey and America at VenturaHighway.com. That's VenturaHighway, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Hey!